This is How I Got Here, a podcast where we interview professionals about how they navigated the twists and turns of their careers. We hope these conversations can help you figure out where you want to go and how you'll get there. We're your hosts. I'm Lara Mitra. And I'm Eric Eliason. In each episode, we'll first give you a quick intro about who we are speaking with, and then we'll dive into the interview. To stay up to date, follow How I Got Here on LinkedIn and subscribe to our newsletter at howigotherepodcast.com. We hope you enjoy. Growing up, Britannia Bowie moved countries every three years. This shaped her professional approach. Throughout her career, B demonstrated a strong ability to adapt to new cultures and situations. Unsurprisingly then, B's career has been varied. She started by adjusting to the boys' club culture and investment banking, then moved on to a totally new culture at Disney, where people valued art and media, only to later move into the startup world, which was immensely different than the corporate environments that she was used to. Ultimately, B's story offers a great lesson for us all as we go through our careers. The ability to read the room and be humble enough to adapt based on the circumstances can be a powerful tool to finding success. Hi, my name is Britannia Bowie, and I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at Harry's. B, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in the States or, or somewhere else? All over the place. So I was born in Singapore. My parents are both Singaporean, extended families all there. And my dad is an engineer. So he designed offshore oil drilling rigs. And so because of his job, we moved all the time. So we moved countries every three-ish years growing up and then was in the U.S. for college, for undergrad and kept bouncing around actually. You know, even I think between schools and jobs after graduating, I kept moving different cities in the U.S., which I really liked. Until now, this is probably the longest I've been anywhere. Hmm. And so we know you went to Georgetown College and you majored in business. And I'm curious to hear a little bit about when you got to college, you know, what sorts of things were you interested in? And did you have a sense of what you wanted to do with your career afterwards? Business was like, in, in one, in like from one respect, like very personal and intimate, at like the notion of business and then the other hand, also this like amorphous thing, like what the, I, don't, I don't really know what business is. It was personal because like, you know, every time I would talk to my parents about why are we moving, which I thoroughly loved. I think my older brother didn't like the moves as much as I did. I like, I really embraced it. The reason was always something to do with jobs, something to do with business or company. So I felt like it had such a personal, like powerful impact on my life that shaped me. And so it felt like a dynamic, interesting thing to do. I um, had a business degree in like international business and finance. So really kind of focusing on like my upbringing and, and what influenced me. Hmm. Wow. I, I really resonate with that B. It was like in going to college, it's like, yeah, after I graduate, I want to go work in business, whatever that yeah, means. It doesn't it's mean like... anything. <laughs> Yeah. And, and in your case, for me, I ended up going into consulting, but in your case, you went into investment banking, right? At UBS. Right. Yes. And so what drew you, so you were like business, cool and international business maybe, but now you're working in iBanking. What drew you to that? Yeah. So I have an older brother and he started his career in investment banking and he learned it through, he went to NYU. So he learned it through trying a bunch of different jobs. He was an economics major and that had sort of um, experience there, which I learned through, I think, 
like at least in a lot of Asian families that I know, uh, it's like doctor, lawyer, and then only like recently, <laughs> then it was like, yeah, investment banker too. <laughs> and then like, you know, maybe consultant out of that, but there's like a fixed a set of professions that, you know, your parents thought was, was worthy. Yeah. Um, so I learned a lot of it from my brothers. I did my internship at Goldman in the media and entertainment group and then said, Hey, okay, well, it's like, it's, it's interesting. I don't know a lot about what I'm learning here. My finance degree, I think got me a little bit interested. And so I decided I was, okay, well, as a starting point, I could start there and then, and then figure it out. Yeah. And were you like, it sounds like, pretty influenced by your parents or, or kind of society's perception of what was the right job to do? Is, is that what kind of attracted you to that? One of those four? <laughs> my mom and my dad, especially my mom, though, really prioritized education. So she is the oldest of nine. Both my parents grew up, you know, uh, pretty poor. And she was pulled out of school really early. Probably, I want to say the equivalent of like sixth grade or something like that. And so she had to work as a job as a maid cleaning houses to support the eight other children that came. And, you know, for both of my parents, like neither of them went to sort of like a four year college program at all. And then for my mom, she was pulled out even earlier. And so this emphasis on education and the stories that they told, like, you know, we, we never forgot it, that, that that was the sort of the, the path that they had gone on. And so doing something with the education you, you got was really important. And so going back to your investment banking years, how did you find the job? Did you enjoy it? Were, were you good at it? I think that adapting to the style of my managers, cultures of investment banking, which I think has changed over time, but at least for me, it didn't really, it wasn't, didn't feel very hard to me. I think probably because when you move all the time, you're always like the other that has to fit in really quickly. And so you have to quickly assimilate and adapt. And that's probably something that has served me well, I think. And for banking, it's like this sort of boys club, banking, tough guy culture. I'm like, okay, that's, that's what you do here. And that's how you behave. And okay, so I'm going to do these things. It's going to work and, and, it's, and I'm going to fit in. And that serves you well in banking. Yeah, absolutely. And we know after a couple of years in banking, you transitioned away from banking. What led you to leave? When you're in your second year in investment banking, you know, headhunters are picking up the phone and like dialing. It's like a thing that happens every year. And I sort of said, well, I, I don't think like, I'm like not that excited about the deal. Like it's not what gets me up in the morning and going. I also didn't want any of the personal lives from the senior folks that I saw around me. Um, I remember I had an MD and at late at night when we were, you know, all of us analysts were still like trying to jam on something or eating dinner, he would still be there, but he'd like put his feet up on the desk and be like reading the newspaper. And I remember asking him like, why are you like, why are you here? Like, why don't you go home? And he was pretty honest. Like his preference is like, you know, still be around. There's still stuff to do. And to me, I'm like, that, that sounds crazy. You know, I, I, I didn't really understand it. And I, there's no one there that was at a senior level that I felt like, well, that, like I saw something there or I would aspire to be that. It was probably quite the opposite, which is why I decided to leave. And so I remember intentionally like talking to, you know, 
my the other folks um, my year being like, well, I'm I'm actually like I'm not going to take any of these headhunter calls. I'm just not going to do it because if I do it and I and then they convince me to interview, which they're really good at doing, and they put that paycheck in front of me, it's very very hard to walk away from. I knew it was hard to walk away from investment banking money. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to even not going to not going to do it. I really like the commitment that you made to tie your hands ahead of time. And it's clear what you were saying no to, but tell us about what you were looking towards. I really liked the media and entertainment industry. I had done that, you know, for my internship, I had gone into UBS's media group and I, and I liked that. And I think partly that, you know, that was like growing up as a performing arts kid, but I also, my brother had a big interest in film. We used to make home movies that I, you know, I don't have those VHS tapes anymore or whatever, but if I did, I'm sure we would, it would be ridiculously embarrassing and hilarious, but you know, we were always performing. And so I think that drew me to that industry. And Walt Disney was a, um, a company that I covered. So someone forwarded me a link to what was then called the strategic planning group of Walt Disney. And it was a group that had been around for a long time. It was like, it, it sort of pulled from consultants and bankers. Someone sent me a link and I said, okay, yeah, cool. I'll try it. Actually, all of my job moves have been way less intentional, I feel like sometimes than the story that I can tell. But yeah, honestly, someone just sent me a link and I'm like, yeah, cool, I'll apply. And what was your time at Disney like? What were you doing there? And did you find it to be more inspiring and exciting than your investment banking years? Yeah, I had two different jobs at Disney. So the first one was the strategic planning job, which is basically a corporate strategy job that was when Eisner was still the CEO before it moved to Iger. And that job was a great sort of like bridge because everyone that had a very similar training for me, and it was basically an internal strategic group that also executed on deals. So I remember one of the first deals we did was selling the Disney store to the children's place. And it was sort of like very deal focused. I'm like, okay, I know how to do this. And then when Iger came uh, on board, all of us learned through the LA Times on a Monday morning that our chief strategy officer and group was going to drastically change and get disbanded. They had intended to tell us on Friday, but we learned through the paper on Monday because, you know, it's LA and news gets around. It was a big deal. Whoa, that's a tough way to find out. So what did you end up finding at Disney that kept you? There was an opportunity to stay on with a new strategic planning group, but it became a lot more advisory. I would say more like an internal consulting firm. And what I really liked about going to Disney was being able to work with all of the business units, much work much closer to the business. And so my boss at the time had, you know, saw the president of the studio's business in the bathroom at some LA restaurant and said, Hey, you know, if you're looking for talent, you know, you can talk to this person and she's interested in staying at Disney. So, which is a little bit weird when they came and told me that this is how the conversation <laughs> happened in a men's room in, an es- in a restaurant in LA, but I guess that's how, that's how deals are done. And it was working for the studio's business. At that point in time, I was told there was no like business people mm. uh, working in the studio's business. And they had a lot of big projects. And so they brought a woman over from basically what is like an internal sourcing team at Disney and brought me over. And the two of us were going to work on any sort of projects that needed help with. 
I remember because it was specifically in the studio's business, a lot of the digital work we were doing is on all the post-production downstream. Like how do you get it more efficient? How do you build scale? And I had to take like a post-production 101 class at night at UCLA, which I thought was so fun. Like you could take a, you know, you, here's working on a job. I know nothing about film and post-production. The folks that I was working with on a project were all really senior editors, people that had been filming a long time. They're like, listen, honey, like, you know, nothing about, you know, cutting film. I'm like, ah, I got to take this class. And I, and I really enjoyed the like process of becoming an expert at something expert enough, you know, like not true expert, but like dangerously good at something and know something so that I could make a change. Remember one of my projects I built was Miramax's digital film library. So Miramax had a ton of films, like, but actual physical still, you know, canisters all over the world. And it was a project to scan a lot of that film so that we didn't lose it. We could maintain it. And I had to go like fundraise within Disney, $3 million to go do that project. And it was a huge project of mine. I, you know, I didn't know anything about films. So I had to learn a lot to get money to do that. And that's sort of how I started to think about um, startups in a different way. And, and then I want to hear a little bit more about uh, your Miramax integration. This sounds like it was a hugely important project. You had to go fundraise internally. How did that, how did it go? It was really interesting. I think when the, when the Weinsteins were leaving Miramax, Disney had owned that studio for, I think I like 12 or 13 years, but it had never been integrated, right? It was ran out of New York. Disney's headquarters is in LA, total separate entity. And so my boss told me, okay, Wine scenes are leaving. We need to integrate them, but we just need to figure out basics. And so she said, okay, we need to figure out who do we keep? Who do we let go? What is of strategic importance? What is going on in there? What are they working on? I'm like, okay, cool. I can do this. I can do this. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. I don't even know what like a company integration even meant. So I didn't have a lot of direction, uh, which was like fun, but also a little bit scary. So I went in. And I had like my list of things to do. I went into the company. I was like, well, you know, I need to know who's doing what job and, you know, how many titles do you have? And I need to like (laughs) organize and structure. And everyone looked at me and, you know, I had no clue. I didn't really appreciate what was going on, which is Miramax has gone through rounds and rounds of layoffs even before I got there. And for the people remaining, Disney was like, you know, the evil headquarters person was me showing up. And so, as you could probably guess, no one wanted to work with me. No one gave me any information, (laughs) a lot of shut office doors. I wasn't making any progress, but I kind of kept just like leaning in and pushing harder because what I had learned, I think through investment banking, even in the strategy job was sort of like grit, resilience, like pushing, being aggressive is how you got things done, especially watching the bosses I had at time, you know, like that was the way things worked. So I, I remember going back to LA after my first sort of stint in New York at Miramax and my boss sat me down. She was like, okay, I'm getting terrible feedback on everything that you're doing. Like just terrible. Like they think you're being like pushy. They don't understand why you're there. That you know, you're like rubbing people the wrong way. It's just like all sorts of wrong. She's like, we have to make a lot pro- like progress quickly, but you're just not approaching it the right way. But that's kind of, the only guidance I got. So I'm like, okay, I know I'm fucking up. I can clearly tell I'm not making any progress. Like, what am I going to do? So I'm like, okay, well, let me fly back out there. That's some tough feedback to get. So 
what did you do to turn things around? I think it was probably just the really small things that I started to notice. Well, okay, well, everybody in this office is way more casual. There's no business casual. It's just like t-shirt and jeans. I'm like, oh, cool. I can do that. That's if that feels good. And, you know, I had no, I realized I had no personal relationship with anyone. There's no reason for them to trust me and sort of put myself in their shoes where they are going through rounds of layoffs. It's chaos for them. Um, And I started just by trying to be helpful, make friends with people, trying to be helpful where I can. Um, It would explain, you know, what's happening at Disney to the extent people wanted to listen. And, And this is like, being helpful, like all the offices were moving, right? So it was like moving and packing boxes, like pushing carts of film in the rain between different buildings in Tribeca. I'm talking about being helpful and it's most just like, what can I do perspective? And I I think I just needed to start to care more about what they had cared about. You know, everyone that worked there had built an amazing um, portfolio and reputation They were there because they loved film. Um, And I just had to take a completely different perspective to ultimately getting that, you know, that job done. And I never had to do that before. Or it wasn't what I was taught would be successful in a professional environment. So I guess now looking back on that, between this like more aggressive, pushy approach that you started with versus like this relationship building, being helpful, making friends approach, where where do you stand now on like what what works best? I mean, I'm I'm imagining it's some combination of the two, but after going through this experience, where did you land? Yeah, I think for it is, I mean, yeah, it is some combination. I I would say like I definitely have like a natural style that is a little bit a little bit more on the aggressive side if you had to pick. I think when you're like also like a younger child or older brother, I grew up as a tomboy. I think I have a little bit of that in me. But it was probably more about how do you build like tools to put in your toolkits, know when to use one version of yourself versus the other, and not in a way that feels inauthentic to your own personal leadership style, but in a way that you feel like is appropriate for the situation. And I, and I think that that ability to read the room and understand people actually came very naturally to me. I just didn't know at that time with Miramax that that is something you applied to work. I remember my mom telling me these stories growing up. She would tell my she would tell my brother and I later on when we were you know in college. She's like, oh, you know, your dad if your if your dad ever came home and he was like a bad mood, like it was like really you know like my parents didn't like, you know my parents like they didn't like spank kids. Like I would I would probably say they like beat kids if they didn't get to like you know that's just very like straight up old school Asian. So if my dad was in a bad mood, you know dinner would be really tense. And my mom would say that my older brother would have like no clue as to like the, the, the environment, what's happening to my dad's in a bad mood. Like, let's like, you know, like, like he would just like, if you know, mess around or whatever, but me, I would like sense it right away. And my mom would tell me that I would finish dinner, go take a shower, get myself changed, put on pajamas, be like, okay, I love you. Everybody go, go and go to bed because I knew I could sense it. And I would adapt my, what I was doing pretty, uh, pretty quickly. And I think today, you know, every culture um, and company and group of friends that you work with, like people have different preferences, people, and it's not about changing who you are. It's about understanding and being sympathetic where people are coming from and then thinking about, okay, what's going to work best in this situation? Hmm. 
Well, to go back to your career story, we know that you eventually left Disney and attended HBS, where it seems like you developed an interest in consumer products, which is a pretty different space than media. How did that come to be? Yeah, so I have always been a product junkie. Um, I uh, grew up loving to go, you know, any country I went to, I love going to drugstores and grocery stores, and I love looking at everything. And I, in particular, I loved you know, cosmetics and skincare. I remember very early on when I was young, my mom bought me that we went, I don't remember how old I was, but we went to the body shop and my mom bought me the first like multi-step skincare routine. I'm, I'm less focused on makeup, more in skincare. And I thought it was so cool to be able to do that. And I and I just got hooked, you know, and sort of the, maybe it's my Asian stereotype of like a 12 step routine for skincare, but I live that stereotype, I suppose. Um, I remember one of my hobbies when I was in LA was learning about the natural products industry. How do you formulate? Like, how do they figure out what ingredients to put in the bottle? I would buy, I would buy like, you know, like, like supplier trade show tickets, which those are pretty expensive. They're like $350 for a trade show. And I would walk the floor of the natural expo um, on the West coast. And I would wear a badge and no one would talk to me because there was no company name or no manufacturer. <laughs> literally just my name, which they're like, who are you? Like, why would I spend time with you at a trade show? But it was cool. I got to, I got to see different ingredients and brands and suppliers. And I just felt like how cool would it be to design my own product? And that's where, that's where it sort of started, that interest. And we know after business school, you went and worked for a place called Own Products, and we couldn't actually find too much about that online. So it'd be great to hear a little bit from you about what that was. And, and was that an extension of what you were just describing in terms of wanting to get closer to, to consumer products? The CEO of Method Home, like the natural killing product company, he was starting a company that was focused on natural um, women's skincare. So really up my alley. So someone put us in touch and said, hey, like um, he's looking for someone, his first employee. And I knew coming out of school, which I graduated business school in 2009, so not a great market. And I was like, okay, I want to work at a startup and I want to design product. Like, mm. and, and it wasn't like I want to do marketing or when it like, I don't have like, I didn't have experience in any of those things, but like, I wanted to be a product designer, which is not really what business school prepares <laughs> you for. Yeah. Um, so I met with him. He, I was, uh, he flew me out to San Francisco and he sort of, you know, and to convince him to do that, I was like, look, you know, I don't have a background in all these things, but if you put me up against anybody who is thinking about natural skincare, like I guarantee I will know more, which is like a really ballsy thing to say, but it was like a personal hobby. You know, like I read all the magazines, I looked at everything. So he was like, okay, cool. Um, so we, we, um, we went out there. I spent a ton of time with him. He also wanted to, you know, test, and he was pretty explicit about this. Like he was skeptical that I would be an entrepreneur. Like, could I actually do that? What does it look like? And, you know, we, we took a bunch of meetings together, started talking about the brand and the products, spent a ton of time together. And he was like, yeah, I think you can do this. Um, and so that was my first job that someone gave me to design our portfolio. In some ways, this seems like it was a dream role for you. You know, you got to work in product design, working in skincare, which is what you were interested in. Why did you eventually leave? The company struggled 
quite a bit. You know, we had a change in our founder and CEO halfway through, which, you know, for a startup, losing your founder is challenging. I think we, we had success commercially to a certain extent, but I, I'm not sure we scale the company the way it needed to be. And, you know, at some point it was probably like about four years in, I'm like, okay, I, I think, you know, you have to know when to call it four plus years in, it was time for me. And so what's the story of how you started working at Harry's? What, how did you end up getting that job? Jeff, who's one of the founders, went to Wharton Business School. So did my husband. They were the same year, so they had a lot of mutual friends in common. And a really good friend of ours uh, who was working for Harry's, for Jeff at the time, they wanted to launch a foaming shave gel and they didn't know how to make it. And so they sort of said, <laughs> okay, well, like, you know, like I have this friend and like, you know, she knows she does this for other companies and startup. Like, in San Francisco, why don't we just like talk to her? So I helped them by just saying, hey, like this is the suppliers. These are things I would consider. Here's how I would think about product development. And then eventually Andy, who is Harry's um, other co-founder came out and started spending time with me and asked me to join Harry's. Hmm. Were you ready? Were you yes or, or were you need convincing? I said no, actually. I, um, my husband really preferred San Francisco over New York. I was like, oh, I'm not sure, like razors, like I don't like, I don't shave my face, like, you know, running product development for a men's shaving company. I was also really tired. I wanted to take a break. So I said no. And then I remember Andy uh, emailed me a little bit later and said, hey, I happen to be in San Francisco for work. Can we just like meet up for coffee or whatever? I'm like, yeah, cool. Well, I learned later that he didn't happen to be there. <laughs> he came out specifically. And so Andy's very persistent when it comes to recruiting, which I'm very grateful for. So he came out and uh, the tactic he's used was, well, okay, well, why don't you just consult with us full time? And I'm like, okay, I guess I could do that, right? I'm trying to, I'm sort of in between jobs, trying to figure it out. And I sort of naively asked like, like you, like full-time or is it like a couple hours a week? He's like, no, no, full-time, full-time. And like he, and then he said, okay, well, you're going to come out. Let's start these days. And when you come out, we're just going to introduce you to the team as like someone working here. We're not going to say you're a consultant and all that stuff. I'm like, all right, cool. I guess you know, <laughs> for some reason he wants to do that. Makes sense. Um, but, you know, not too long after that, like, a you know, a couple uh, month or so in, I was like, all right, like this place, like, I, I like what we're doing. I like these people that I'm working with. I feel really energized by it. And then, you know, joined, truly joined full time and then moved to New York. One of the things Eric and I learn a ton from is hearing about setbacks that our guests face. And I'm wondering if you have an example from your early years at Harry's of a of any of the tougher moments or experiences that you could share with us? Yeah. Um, I think, so when I first started at Harry's, I think we were, I don't know, maybe 15 people or so in. So it's pretty early, but at that point, Jeff and Andy are, you know, our two founders and Will, our chief, our um, chief operations officer had been together for a period of time, maybe a year, maybe under a year, but at that stage in your life at a startup, that's like a, that's a lifetime. And so um, I came in and I, I consistently felt like I was like behind the ball or slow because they had spent, you know, startup hours working together, which was like 24 seven. And I felt like I didn't know what was happening. It was hard to kind of adjust to be part of that leadership team. And so for me, 
my initial instincts like, oh, I feel like I'm behind. Like I need to catch up. And there's, there's a, there was probably a bunch I need to catch up on just the business and the industry itself. But it, you know, it sort of put me back a little bit in the sense of like, okay, you know, what can I do? And I think then I remember there was a product that I had to launch. And at that point in time, you know, I, I didn't have, the only employee I think I really had was Newland, who is one of our designers, but I had to do the sourcing and the product development and, you know, writing copy and it's a little bit of everything. And I set like a really aggressive time on like, yes, we can meet it. But, you know, pulling supply for packaging from China, everything, I was not super experienced in that. And the, the, the launch was going to be late. And I remember sitting down like, oh shit, what do I do? Like, this is the first thing I'm launching. <laughs> that is my responsibility um, very clearly. And I've been indicating this whole time that it's been on track. You know, I remember flying to China last minute, trying to convince people to get bottles to me by a certain time, but it sort of is what it is. You can only do so much. And I remember writing this long email to Jeff and Andy sort of saying, okay, like this is what's happened. Therefore, this is happening. This is all my option, you know, path A, B and C backup plan. This is, this is what I'm going to do. Um, and I think the learning, they were like, yeah, cool. We understand. Let's do these things differently. And I think the learning there for me was that while I was already, it, while I felt like over my skis or I wasn't sure if something was going to happen is to be able to sort of, you know, openly admit that and have that conversation and say like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I think it's these things. Like, how would you help me think through it? And doing that earlier on is better. And then just because you, you know, are a leader, um, you know, one of the leaders of a company doesn't mean that you have, definitely does not mean that you know what to do or that you have all the answers. And we know that you were primarily playing an R&D role during your, the first few years at Harry's. And But recently, I think two years ago, you're now the chief commercial officer. And I'm wondering, you know, given your passion of like really being in that product space, what, what, what drew you to this new role? Yeah. So when I started, the focus was on like R&D product development and design. So I really enjoy that. Uh, the move to the commercial side. So I still run... Um, manage R&D and design. Um, so I didn't have to give it up, which I think was really important to me and probably strategic on Jeff and Andy's part in terms of knowing what I, what I really loved. Um, and it's honestly, it wasn't something that I asked for, um, but Jeff and Andy actually uh, brought up this role to me. They said, hey, as we evolve and we want to launch more brands, like, we do think that there is an opportunity for you to play more of a commercial role and to manage um, uh, the Harry's brand. And I thought it was interesting. I had never really actually considered it until they brought it up to me. Hmm. Um, I asked them what they would choose, what they would prefer. And their preference was for me to take on a commercial role. And I asked why, and they explained it. And I thought it was a great learning opportunity and in just an area of the business that I had spent less time in and said, okay, yeah, let's, Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, just looking back at your career, it's so interesting. You've ended up in this role where, you know, you're at a company that's beloved, has a beloved brand in a space that you're passionate about in a role where you can be an expert, you can keep learning a bunch. Um, I'm, I'm interested to understand, like, how do you think about defining a successful career? And do you feel like you've achieved it yet? Because it, it just, I don't know, from the outside, it's like, wow, this is an unbelievably successful person. Maybe the traditional word career where it's like a profession that you pick and you kind of like slowly chip away and become like the lead in it. I think from that perspective, 
that's not what I've built. It's almost like the opposite given my like bounce around a little bit, but you know, maybe the idea of career here is more focused for me, at least it's more focused on accumulating experiences that I find challenging, interesting, make me a little nervous, but also have a lot of sense of purpose, you know? And I think the desire to learn and be like a good enough expert in certain areas to make, you know, big and meaningful, impactful decisions, that gives me a lot of purpose. And so I think from that perspective, from a career, I've been able to kind of follow my gut when I, when I, when those opportunities exist and sort of just take them and, you know, not to think, not think too much about how it's going to turn out, but to just really take the ride for the ride. I often get asked by more, you know, junior folks on the team, like, how do I plan for all this? Like, if I want to do some of the stuff that's similar to you, how do I plan for it? And I often feel like the answer I give them is kind of a letdown and not, maybe not satisfactory, but I truly believe that it's really hard to plan for yourself five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years down the road. I think that um, you are best suited to think about the match for you in that moment because you will be a different person five years from now. The world will also be a different place five years from now. And planning for that is arbitrary and is going to change. And we should just embrace that that's going to change. And you don't know what that's going to look like. And so it's about the thing that's in front of you. What is that thing that you would say is in front of you right now? I'm going into my 40s, um, which is really fun. And I think a lot of my focus at Harry's has over time, but even more so now is like building people and building leaders, seeing people come into their own, seeing people get nervous and then stretched and then coming out on the other end and seeing them successful. And I've seen that through the careers of a lot of folks that have been on my team over time that I've either helped to grow or championed or, you know, uh, push through. Um, and that's been really, really rewarding. And I think if I think about like purpose and impact going forward, which I spend more time thinking about now, just reflecting about moving into the next decade of my life, I think that that gives me a, um, a lot of sense of purpose. You know, it's building people. I think it's, it's more lasting. It feels like it's bigger than yourself and bigger than I've always looked for something that's bigger than a PNL goal. Because that, to me, is not that exciting. You know, while it, it, to me, those are just things that enable all the other interactions and relationships that you can have. You can check out more episodes and subscribe to our newsletter at howigotherepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.